The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, let us just <coughs> get going and uh, see what happens. Dear Ajahn, can proper uh, reflection uh, include reflecting on concepts and ideas? Thank you. Uh, yes, I mean, a lot of these things that we're talking about now are really just concepts and ideas. Uh, yeah, I mean, they are reality in one sense, they point towards a certain reality. But of course, they are just concepts and ideas about that reality. It's not the same thing as realizing it, which actually is uh, seeing things with insight. So all reflection is uh, the use of concepts and ideas uh, to some extent. I'm not sure if that is exactly what you meant, but um, so all proper reflection has to be in line with the Dhamma for it to be considered proper reflection. Yeah, it has to be Yoniso Manasikara, wise reflection. Otherwise, it is not part of that. Uh, so it has to be things that actually, uh, you know, promote the path that make you move in the right direction. Uh, if it isn't, then it's then it's kind of irrelevant. Uh, as long as it's uh, you know you become a better person, it kind of uh, you become more peaceful, you become more you know you have more insight into things, uh, you um, see things in terms of impermanence and non-self, etc. You're building up good qualities inside. Uh, then all of that is uh, then heading in the right direction. Then it's called proper reflection. That's how you decide whether something is proper or not, uh, and not really whether it's concepts or ideas. That's you know that's kind of not really relevant. Uh, that doesn't matter. Uh, as what matters is whether those concepts and ideas are lead, leaning you, uh, heading you in the right way, in the right direction. Yeah? So, uh, just uh, if, if I don't answer your qu questions properly and you think I have misunderstood what you're trying to say, you're always super duper welcome to try again uh, Yeah, and say, you didn't answer my question. Here, this is the real one. <laughs> and that's okay. I, that is no problem whatsoever. Uh, Dear Ajahn, I am a habitual people pleaser. I aim to please from the fear of others getting angry or being dissatisfied. This type of pleasing is never feels kind. How do I change my view or effort to make it so? Thank you. Okay, well, be kind. Sometimes you don't have to please someone. Someone is already happy with you. Yeah, you, you know that it, uh, you don't have to please them. Uh, and then that's the time to be kind. Yeah, so be kind at, at those times when there is no need to please somebody. Uh, there's always going to be some people in your life you don't have to please. Uh, yeah, because they're already happy with you, whatever. Uh, so then you, are, then you try to act from kindness towards them. Uh, yeah. When Ajahn Brahm is here, I don't know, maybe you are afraid of Ajahn Brahm, I'm not sure. But if you, <laughs> if you are afraid of Ajahn, get someone you're, not, you're absolutely not afraid of, someone who is the most benign person in the universe who you can kind of possibly be afraid of. Uh, like, um, I don't know, like the Buddha statue. Yeah, offer some drinks to the Buddha statue, like the uh, uh, Buddha puja that uh, is very commonly done in uh, Sri Lankan culture. Yeah, you can do that. Do that out of kindness. Oh, I do this to the Buddha. The Buddha is not going to tell you off, right? It's too late. He passed away two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, 
do it to something, do kindness somewhere, do kindness in an email, yeah, write an email to someone, uh, put your words very, very carefully, especially for someone who you're not afraid of at all, uh, and just a uh, very, you know, a very gentle email, write to someone you wouldn't even think of writing to otherwise, uh, write a kind email to them and say, wow, thank you for being my companion in the spiritual life, I really value you, yay, sadhu, uh, <laughs> and yeah, something like that. Do some, do it in places where you don't have to worry. And then you can still please other people. Yeah, you cannot just cut off the pleasing just like that. But what you can do is you can maybe gradually make it more, make it less severe. The fact that you are already aware of the problem means that uh, it's not, you know, it, it's under your heading in the right direction. But it's okay to be a little bit of a people pleaser. Everyone is. That's just, you know, we all want to be liked. Everyone has some of that in them. That's just part, part and parcel of being human. It's not something you can really do away with entirely. So uh, don't worry too much about that. But add something extra when you uh, to this. I don't know if that's helpful, but uh, try it out. See what happens. Dear Ajahn, not knowing the Four Noble Truths, we create Kama using Chaitana. Uh, whether we do wholesome or unwholesome, we create Kama and we have Avidja in the mind. My question are one, how do we do wholesome acts with the minimal Avidja? When does the uh, practitioner let go of the wholesome conditioning of the mind? Uh, how do you do wholesome acts with a minimum avidja when you have minimum defilements in the mind? Yeah? The avidja is always supported by the five hindrances. This is one of those beautiful suttas where you talk about uh, uh, dependent origination and it talks about the things that support avidja at the very root of avidja. Actually, it's found in the uh, one of the suttas in the Anguttara Tens. And so avidja... Ignorance, right? For those of you who don't know, ignorance, delusion, uh, is supported by the five hindrances. Five hindrances are the things that block you from going deeper in meditation. These are the kind of uh, practical defilements of the mind that we all can deal with. Uh, yeah. So you, less you have of those five hindrances, uh, the less avidja you have. Uh, so act from a pure mind. If you feel that your mind is impure, be very careful what you do. Uh, if you feel angry about, with somebody, that's the time not to act. That's the time to go to bed with a nice cup of tea and just relax until you cool down. Yeah, Be kind to yourself. Oh. Or it is the time to use Yoni Sikara to see if you can think differently. Yeah? Yeah, do something else. Not, don't act. Don't feel that compulsion of the anger. Don't allow that to play out and act accordingly. Yeah? If you feel really greedy, strong desires to do something, okay, if, if you can hold those a little bit in check, probably a good idea. Huh? They're not as bad. Anger is much worse. Yeah? Anger is said by the Buddha to be the worst kind of defilement, huh? but he says relatively easy to overcome. Yeah? If we really try hard, you can overcome anger because there are some very simple strategies for overcoming ill will and anger. We can all do that uh, if we want to. Huh? So uh, that is the best way. Minimum avidja in the mind. Yeah? Then act. Uh, and sometimes when, if you have to act when you have anger, then don't act on the anger. Uh, sometimes you may have anger in the mind, but you don't necessarily have to act on it. Uh, you can be angry with one person, you talk to someone else. It doesn't mean that you are angry with them at the same time, if you know what I mean. Uh, 
So you, sometimes you have to act even if there are defilements there. So just kind of let the defilement be in the background and act on some other kind of motive instead. That's possible to do as well. When do the practitioner let go of the wholesome conditioning of the mind? Um, let go of the wholesome. It just What it means is uh, what you do is not you let go in the sense of that you don't attach to the wholesome conditioning. But you always have wholesome conditioning. An arahant has full, 100% wholesome conditioning. Yeah? So in that sense, you don't let go of it. Uh, regardless of how far you go on this path, you always have the wholesome conditioning there. But you don't attach to it anymore when you go beyond a certain point because it becomes part of who you are. You can't avoid being doing the good things. You can't avoid being kind. Yeah, When you meet someone who is very gone a long way on the path, that's why they are so full of metta. That's why if an arahant gets angry, you get to be concerned. What kind of arahant is this? A dodgy arahant. Yeah. <laughs> So arahants get angry. Maybe they're not arahants. Maybe they maybe they are not awakened. Maybe they haven't really gone that far on the path. This is what makes this path so interesting. That you meet people who are just different. They are the ones who deserve to be reckoned as having profound insight and meditation because of their qualities. So you never let go in that sense. You only let go in the sense that you don't hold on to them because they are part of who you are. Arahants are by nature wholesome. They cannot do anything bad. Specifically says that in the sutta, the ten things the arahant is incapable of doing, cannot kill any living beings, cannot steal, cannot even have any kind of sexual activity, uh, cannot lie, yeah? cannot drink alcohol and intoxicants knowingly at least, uh, cannot store things up, uh, cannot, act out of ang- cannot act out of greed, anger, delusion or fear. Why? Well, because they haven't got those qualities anymore. They have been eliminated in their minds. So, yeah, so that's what it, that's how you stop acting from the wholesome, only in the sense that you don't attach to it. Dear Ajahn, in the suttas it sometimes mentions Brahmas and Maras in the plural. Is Mara a type of being or a single being? Many thanks. <laughs> Um, Mara, it doesn't actually say anywhere in the suttas whether Mara is single or many of them. The suttas are not that specific. A lot of the more detailed descriptions of Mara doesn't happen in the suttas. It happens in the commentaries. Yeah, that's where you get, oh, Mara is the boss of the of the um, uh, highest sensual realm. What is it again? Paranimitta Vasavati realm. Yeah, the, the, the beings who control the creations of others. It doesn't actually say that in the suttas anywhere. According to the suttas, there is Vasavati, is considered the is given is the name of the being in charge of that realm, not Mara. It is not clear exactly where Mara fits in. One of the main usages of Mara in the suttas is as a mental thing. Yeah, Mara is like the tempter in the mind who tempts you to do bad things. So Mara as a psychological thing, just like the tempter in Christianity perhaps, yeah, that is the main, main use I would say of Mara in the suttas and sometimes Mara also seems to be a like a some kind of powerful being but that is a little bit more marginal yeah. so uh, it's unclear, yeah many Maras, few Maras there probably are, maybe the main Mara and then sub-Maras, yeah 
the super Mara and then the super duper Mara, something like that. You have Mara's daughters, yeah? So the, Mara's daughters, well, they also must be, if Mara is the surname, they must also be called Mara if they are his daughters. Uh, yeah, so it's, I guess there are people with all kind of powers or beings, all kind of powers out there who try to do dodgy stuff and they might be called Mara in one way or another. It's not very clearly defined. Brahmas, yes, Brahmas is certainly in the plural and uh, because Brahma in the suttas are, again, they are referred to beings that are reborn in a particular, the particular plane, yeah, the plane of the jhana, the plane of samadhi. Yeah. And because they refer to those kind of beings, uh, it means that anyone who is born there would be called a Brahma. And that is where there is a shift from the ancient Brahmanical religions, uh, the Hinduism, if you like, uh, where Brahma is one being. Brahma is the supreme god of the universe. Uh, but Buddhism says there is no such supreme god. Uh, there is no kind of final consciousness, the ground of all being. Such a thing doesn't exist. Uh, so the Buddhist, in Buddhism, they redefine the idea of Brahma to mean these beings that live in that particular realm. And uh, those beings have very similar qualities uh, as the Brahma in the Brahmanical religion, the Hindu religion, if you like. Yeah, yeah similar kind of qualities, the sense of uh, uh, metta and kindness and, and all of those kind of things. Uh. Hello, Ajahn. Please explain how to stay calm when someone going through a financial hardship and struggle. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So how can you stay calm when you're going through financial hardship and struggles? Um, the best way to stay calm always is, uh, again, this coming back to this idea that uh, everything in life is so uncertain. Yeah, internalize that idea. Make it very clear that you understand the unreliability of things. Yeah, and then when things difficult, very often we have to get ready for things beforehand. When you are in the middle of it, it is sometimes too late. Yeah, you are already, it's very difficult to change your mind on the spot. But if you develop the right outlook beforehand, then very often you can deal with it when it actually happens. So now is the time, yeah. So are you surprised when COVID comes around? Or do you think, oh yeah, another COVID, yeah. Sure, COVID to be expected, right? COVID, yeah, COVID here, COVID there, COVID-19, COVID-20, COVID-21. <laughs> yeah, this is this are kind of the nature of reality. Sometimes your finances go well, sometimes they go badly. Sometimes relationships come together, sometimes they break up. And just understanding that things are supported by certain conditions. We don't know what those conditions are. They're too complex to really understand. But uh, we cannot control them. Uh, we're not really in charge. Uh, so that this is the thing about things being impermanent, unreliable. Uh, it's very profound teaching. It seems obvious on the surface, uh, but uh, it, when it really sinks in, then you are no longer surprised by financial hardship. Uh, yeah, because everyone sometimes goes through these things. Uh, and then you say, oh yeah, financial hardship. Uh, oh yeah, death, I'm going to die now. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, death is not really the problem. This is the weird thing. In our society, we kind of we make so much out of death as if death is a big problem. Death is not really a big problem. The big problem is living badly. That's the big problem. Because if you live badly, you're creating suffering for yourself. Death is only a short amount of suffering, and then you carry on. Yeah, if you have lived well, it's not such a big issue. 
Sometimes we make too much out of death, uh, as if death itself is something terrible, uh, but it isn't. Uh, that comes very much from a Christian conditioning. Yeah, you're given life by God, uh, and because God, life is God's gift to us, then life is uh, somehow sacred. Uh, but in Buddhism, life is not sacred. In Buddhism, goodness is sacred. Uh, creating good karma, living well. If anything is sacred, it's that. But that too is not really sacred because we don't have the idea of sacred in the same way as Christianity because if there is no creator God, then that whole idea somehow goes a little bit out of the window. Huh? So um, this is how you deal with it. yeah. But uh, in the short term, it's better to think in terms of financial hardship. Uh, yeah, this too will pass. Uh, you're going through a hard time. Uh, uh, it will pass somehow. Somehow you come out of the other end. Uh, at the very least, you will learn something through that hardship. Uh, you will learn something maybe about other people. Sometimes we will read about people in financial hardship and we kind of shrug our shoulders and carry on. Uh, now you know what it feels like. Yeah, That can be very useful. Uh, build up some compassion, some understanding uh, uh, for other pe people, what it's like uh, uh, to live. Uh, Sometimes we are insulated from other people's feelings. We're too far away. Don't really understand what it's like to be in that position. Uh, now is your chance, chance to learn. Uh, every time we go through a difficult situation, we can learn something about the nature of existence. Uh, we can become more sensitive, uh, more compassionate, uh, more understanding, better human beings. Uh, every difficulty in life uh, is an opportunity for growth. Uh, if we see every difficulty as an opportunity for growth, then wow, we're really kind of on the right track. Yeah? Every time someone is difficult in your life, and this happens everywhere, yeah? Instead of thinking, oh no, poor me, I have to deal with this person. Think, okay, wait, uh, how can I deal with this in a way I can actually grow from this? Uh, and that can be painful, uh, can be hard. Uh, you have to change your attitude, the way you work with things. Uh, but as you do that, uh, you learn a new habits, yeah, new ways of thinking about things. Uh, you stop focusing so much about on yourself. You look at the other person, you have compassion instead uh, because you understand they have a problem. Uh. So see it as an opportunity, yeah, financial hardship. Uh, now is your chance to learn. This is the nature of the world. What does that mean to me and what it means to you? What you should really discover is that the things of the world should not matter so much to you anymore. Uh, you should actually increase your ability to live the spiritual life properly because you understand the unreliability of the world outside. That's one lesson. Yeah. Another lesson is learning compassion for other, others in the same position. Yeah. And you should never feel that you are a failure because of financial hardship. Sometimes people think they are a failure because the world doesn't kind of um, praise them for whatever, but the world is unreliable. The world is never going to praise you when you think you sh need should be praised. Uh, the world is kind of utterly unreliable in that way. Uh, so forget about what the world does. Uh, and now you learn that it is out of control. It is not your fault that you have financial hardship. It is no one's fault, usually. Uh, even if you put all your money on the stock market, uh, even if you go to the casino and gamble it all away, uh, still it's not really your fault. Uh, it is your stupid conditioning here. Uh, yeah, learn from that. Yeah, don't blame yourself. Learn from it. I'm going to take my house and put it in the casino on the roulette wheel. Number one, my entire house and my, all my savings. Why? Because I have this feeling that it's going to work out really well. Yeah, and then you get the multiple 30 in return. So, yay, this is the time to do it. That's a famous story Adam Brahm tells. I'm sure you've heard that story before. 
about this fellow had this dream yeah he was dreaming about some horse in the kind of winning yeah in the um, in, in the uh, what it was horse races uh, and this horse was called something like seven angels and it was running in you know running in the seventh uh, uh, heat or something so he, he dreams about this and he goes to the paper in the morning and sure enough he goes to the horse race in the papers there was a horse called seven angels uh, yeah running in the seventh heat it's the seventh of uh, what is the seventh month july it happens to be the seventh of july in the year 2007 this is too good to be true so he goes to the uh, uh, horse race it puts seven thousand uh, dollars horse number seven the seventh race yeah and what happens uh, the horse came seventh. <laughs> it's such a good story, right? And uh, so these things that are so utterly uncertain and so utterly unreliable and just don't know what is going on and nothing can really be predicted. So don't and never blame yourself. Even if you do something foolish like that, even if you do something utterly silly like going to the casino, gambling all your money away, there's some little demon inside of you that led you astray yeah yeah have compassion for yourself learn from it uh, rather than blame yourself uh, every time you blame yourself for your faults uh, you miss an opportunity to learn because the blaming hinders that ability to learn from what is happening here yeah. anyway i hope that helps a little bit uh, so see see what happens uh. Dear Arjan, how does the Mahasi and Goenkaji tradition differ from the Thai tradition? Many thanks. Thai tradition isn't really a tradition in the same way. The difference is that Mahasi and Goenka are systems that have been laid down, specific systems, specific ways of doing your meditation, yeah? And you have to follow that system. Sit for an hour or an hour and a half, then you have a 15-minute break, you sit for another hour and a half, you follow the exact instructions, you breathe, you breathing meditation for the first three days, and you watch the feelings in the body for the rest of the retreat. That's kind of the Goenka tradition, yeah? And you can't really deviate from that. And if you deviate from that, if you go to another teacher, you get thrown out. That's, to me, a bit of a cult, yeah? I think that is one of the, I would say, one of the dangers with the Goenka tradition is that it has a little bit of cultish aspect to it uh, yeah if you go to some other teacher uh, or you try to meditate in another group uh, yeah you you are not really allowed into that group anymore to me that is not a healthy sign uh, but uh, so um but still uh, one should never kind of be too severe uh, some people gain good meditation in these things and insofar as they gain good meditation great yeah good on them and may they carry on and may they continue to gain good meditation through that particular system but it's a bit limited it's limited to that particular way of doing things i know some monks who have were previously part of the goenka tradition and who ended up saying well it's good as far as it goes but you at the end of the day you have to kind of go beyond that system a system is a bit too narrow to encompass everything in the buddhist teachings the mahasi system is a similar is a very clear way of doing things it is based on the visuddhimagga the visuddhimagga you have the uh, you have the vipassana jnanas yeah and this is all the commentarial system in the 
in the Theravada tradition and is based very closely on that, which Gwenka is too. Again, some people have good success, they have good outcomes in that, syst- in that system. And uh, great, yeah, marvelous if people have good uh, things, good outcomes. Uh, personally, I prefer to stay closer to the suttas uh, than going so far in the commentaries. Uh, one of the problems with the Mahasi system is that they turn out a li- supremely large number of stream enterers. Uh, yeah, that is always a little bit to me a little bit of a kind of red flag yeah and i i've had people coming to me and they have said oh yeah i, I was on a mahasa retreat and they told me i was a stream enter at the end but i didn't believe it that's problematic that's really problematic because if you are a stream enter it's such a powerful experience that is very unlikely you will doubt it. it you can't really doubt it yeah you know something absolutely astonishing happened and chances are you weren't even close to stream entry. Huh? Yeah? Because if you had even something similar to that, uh, you might believe that you were a stream entry. Huh? So that is the downside of the system. It may work sometimes, but often it uh, misfires a little bit. Uh, I'm just telling you some of the things that I, you know, uh, my experience. And I'd, you should never kind of completely dismiss a system, but it's, every system has their weaknesses. Uh. The Thai forest tradition is different because it's not a system. It is more a movement, a broad-based movement, yeah, where people uh, practice uh, usually based on how the teachers teach. So it depends on what kind of teacher you have. Uh, it will vary quite a lot. Uh, some even practice based on the suttas, uh, yeah, like... Uh, uh, you know, Ajahn Brahm is a, in a, quite, to quite an extent based on the suttas of the Buddha, the way he practices. Uh, but uh, it is more a a tradition in the sense of going back, trying to go back to the roots of Buddhism, going back to the forest tradition, practicing the vinaya, the rules of the monastics in the proper way. Yeah, It is more a tradition in that sense, uh, instead of being a tradition in the sense of having a rigid meditation system. So that is some of the... Uh, some of the differences. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned in one of the sessions about dwelling in perception of non-delight to, non, of non-delight to ease suffering. Other side of the coin would be to delight in at least uh, or at least be equanimous with a chronically sick body. How do we treat? How do we? How to do that when the Lord Buddha also thinks that health is one of the biggest fortunes? Um. So uh, it is a good fortune if you have it. If you haven't got it, you have to somehow learn to deal with it, right? It means you haven't got that fortune. That's basically what it means. So you have to, unfortunately, you are in a position where you have to just have to learn to deal with the sicknesses of your body. That's, of course, it is a problem, but it doesn't mean that you cannot practice Buddhism in one way or another. You can. Certainly you can practice sila. You can still be kind to people even though you have sickness in the body. That sickness may make things more difficult because maybe you are a bit more irritable or whatever. But uh, you can overcome that, yeah? And you can kind of uh, put that to one side and still be kind at the very least. Uh, um, 
sickness in the body, you have to try to find ways of using meditation uh, whereby you can deal with that sickness. Uh, I don't know what kind of sickness it is, whether it's chronic. Some people have chronic pain uh, that can be quite hard to deal with when you meditate. If it is not chronic pain, then uh, it's, if it's just uh, a matter of what kind of posture you can use, use any kind of posture. Yeah, It doesn't matter. Some people, they have to lie down to meditate. That's okay. If you have to lie down, that's fine. If you can't even lie down, then uh, do something else. The only posture we don't recommend is standing on your head. Yeah, <laughs> We had a monk who did that once. He's standing on his head and he said he got into some kind of samadhi while he stood on his head. And then when he kind of came out, he was collapsed on the floor. So he wasn't. So, that, so that since then, we have stopped recommending that particular posture. Yeah. <laughs> so just try a few things. Yeah, and uh, there's always something you can do. Even if you have chronic pain, you can also try to use some medication as well. As long as it doesn't cloud your mind too much, it makes meditation po- impossible. Medication is okay. Yeah, if it helps you to manage that pain. Uh, so you just have to try to manage it somehow, somehow dealing with it, uh, and then uh, coming out of it. Uh. Yeah, so being equanimous, that's a good idea. Yeah, try to be equanimous to the sick body, uh, not try to, uh, and then delight instead in those things that you have. Uh, yeah, the Dhamma, the Buddha, delight in those things, uh, and then try to, uh, kind of go beyond that sick body in one way or another. Yeah. It is not easy, but uh, I think with a bit of uh, perseverance, uh, you will be able to deal with it to some extent. Yeah. Dear Ajahn, in my meditation, as my mind becomes more quiet, I feel a sense of fear, as if something inside my mind doesn't want to let go. Yes, that makes sense, yeah? It is not, yeah? Yeah. I try to patiently and kindly be with this feeling rather than push it away. Any suggestions? Many thanks. Uh, yeah, this is uh, quite a common experience because uh, we are letting go of things. Uh, and when you let go of things, uh, you know, this is my stuff. Uh, this is me. I'm, you're letting go of uh, Some people can't even let go of the thinking mind. They're so addicted to thinking. Uh, when the thinking stops, they feel a sense of fear. The thinking is gone. Uh, or the hand disappears. You can't feel your hand anymore. Oh no, what happened to my hand? Uh, yeah, so it is because of attachment to things that the fear often arises. So you just learn gradually to see the um, beauty, yeah, the delight of that peaceful state. Look at the other side of the coin. Okay, so yes, you, there are certain things that are kind of disappearing a little bit, but what does it actually feel like? And what you find is that if your meditation is heading in the right direction, it feels wonderful marvelous when things disappear couldn't be better yeah and once you get into that idea then uh, you stop the fear gets is reduced yeah it starts to decline it's not such a big problem anymore because you start to notice the other side of the coin yes you have to give up a few things but actually it's delightful it's like the person who is very greedy they can't give anything away they think they need to have everything for themselves and then one day they give something away and they feel, wow, what a wonderful thing that was to give it away. feels really nice. But before they give it away, they can't do it because they're so attached to their things. Yeah, Similar kind of thing. It's like giving away, giving up. The principle is pretty much the same. 
be stay with the feeling yeah it's a good idea stay with the fear see if it really is a problem if it is real or not and then one day you probably pass through it and it won't be a problem anymore remember that there are lots of people who have gone in this world a long way on this path letting go of all of these things and these people are usually very happy people very balanced very you know gone a long way on this path so look at some of those people who have trod trodden the path before you and see where they are at and then you gain some confidence that this will work out. The Buddha says you let go of the whole world. And when you do that, you feel really profound sense of happiness and ease and liberation. So a bit of confidence, a bit of faith in these things. And then trial, a little bit of error, but mostly trial. And mostly trial and success, a little bit of error as you move along. And then you head in the right direction. The only thing you really have to watch out for is if your mind gets unbalanced. Yeah, if you find that your mind has some strong aversion or anger or delusion coming up, if that is happening in your mind, that is when you have to be a little bit gentle and careful with yourself. Because if the delusion starts to arise and you get, or you get angry in your meditation, that is where the mind can get unbalanced. If you then keep on forcing the meditation, then you might reach some kind of imbalance. Yeah, and that is not going to be healthy. So if that is happening, then stop and ask yourself why you're getting upset, why you're getting deluded. Uh, and then start afresh, try, try again, uh, do something else. Uh, that is really the only thing that you need to look out for. But if your mind is in a good state, balanced, at ease, whatever, uh, then you're fine. Uh. Okay, dear Ajahn, thank you for the wonderful teaching. You are very welcome uh. Can you please teach us how to deal with unfairness? Uh, accepting what had happened doesn't cut <laughs> for me anymore. Please help. Uh, thank you. Okay. Uh, so, unfairness. Um, Ajahn Brahm always likes to say, well, why should the world be, be fair anyway? Is it, is it some kind of law of the universe that things have to be fair? And probably not, yeah? Probably the world actually is unfair. Uh, but what is unfairness anyway? Is it, uh, in the bigger picture of things, are things really unfair? Or is it just in the small picture of things that things seem unfair? Uh, what is the comic background that we have? Uh, what are the conditioning we have in this life? Uh, all of these things will affect whether things are fair or not, right? So maybe it isn't unfair at all. Ajahn Brahm has the, 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 the nice story. This is one of Ajahn Brahm's stories. And this is a story when he, he used to teach in prison. Yeah? And when he taught in prison, he, uh, there was this, uh, this, this criminal there. And he told Ajahn Brahm, yeah, you know, I got jailed for something I didn't do. Yeah, I did not do that robbery. I was jailed for that robbery. I didn't do it. I promise you, you believe me. Ajahn Brahm believed him, yeah, because he was talking to his spiritual teacher. Why would he lie to your spiritual teacher? There's no point. Uh, and then the criminal said, well, but actually, you know, uh, I did so many other bad things, yeah? It's only fair anyway, uh, yeah, that I, I'm in prison. I just didn't do that particular thing. But I did lots of other robberies and bad stuff. Uh, so actually, it is fair after all. Uh. So in the big picture, things may actually be fair, how do we know whether things are fair or not? It's very hard to say. So um, how to deal with it is really, you have to, I think you have to sometimes, uh, you do your best. Yeah, you complain if you can complain. You tell your boss or whoever it is that 
listen, this is not fair. And then your boss says, I don't care what you say. I don't know what your boss says. I don't know what bosses are like. Ajahn Brahma is a very good boss. He's very fair, but I don't know what other bosses are like. You try to deal with the unfairness, but sometimes it can't be done. Sometimes there isn't any solution. Yeah, And then instead of blaming anyone, just realize these are the kind of conditions coming together at this particular point. And the world sometimes often is like this. A lot of times people get treated unfairly in so many different ways. Can't do anything about it. Does it really matter? Is it not some kind of worldly unfairness anyway? It's an unfairness about how other people treat you, whether you get high enough salary. And this is just worldly stuff, yeah? But your inner stuff, your inner goodness can never be unfair because it's up to you to be kind from the inside. The things that really matter, there is never any unfairness in those because it's up to you whether you live that spiritual life in the right way. So don't worry so much about those external things. Yeah, At the end of the day, who cares? And that is the right way of thinking about it. If you can think like that, then you can kind of Go with the flow of things in the world uh, and not worry so much about things. Uh. I'm not suggesting you should always accept unfairness. We shouldn't kind of, Buddhists shouldn't be doormats, you know, that's also wrong. Uh. If you can do something, do something. But if you can't, don't harbor anger and ill will. Uh. It's not going to lead to anything positive. Uh. It's that ability to see the difference between uh, those things you can do something about and those things you can't. That's a very useful kind of wisdom to have and then you deal with those things you can do something about and then you those things you can't well you just shrug your shoulders and say okay it goes on yeah i still have good kalyanamittas at the bswa i still have the buddha as my teacher i still have all these good things happening in my life actually it's pretty good yay wow why am i worrying about all the unfairness something like that okay it's easy to say, I know, but uh, you know, it's easy. To, but it works, yeah. If you really try, you can actually. These things actually do work, yeah. So you just have to carry on, and hopefully move at least slowly in that direction. Hi, Ajahn. Out of compassion, can you teach us how to establish seeing oneself? throughout the whole day. Thanks, Ajahn. May you have a peaceful evening. Wow, this is a very kind little note, isn't it? Uh, okay, <laughs> well done. Uh, can you teach, please teach how to establish seeing oneself? Uh, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that, uh, but um, uh, the way uh, to see yourself is with compassion. Yeah, if that's what you mean, uh, you should always have compassion for yourself. Uh, understand that you are subject to suffering in this world you don't have any choice in that yeah suffering is always going to be your companion in this life and then have compassion for yourself don't judge yourself harshly when you make mistakes instead have compassion my conditioning made me do something stupid how can i change my conditioning and then when you are cool about it you can actually start changing your conditioning instead of just being upset with yourself this is what I have done in my life, and I think to me it works. Yeah, it really does. You really do change uh, that that way. Yeah. But if you get angry with yourself, no chance that you're going to change. Yeah. So that's how you see yourself. Have compassion. Be patient with yourself. Uh, realize results on this path that come when they are ready to come, not when you want them to come. Yeah. So you just sit back. You just enjoy the meditation. You don't know what's going to happen next, uh, and you allow things to happen in due course, as they say. Uh, 
Is that what you mean? Maybe that's not what you mean at all. Maybe by seeing oneself, you mean seeing the real you inside. Yeah. How can I find the real me? Is that what you mean? Well, you will be very disappointed if that's what you mean, because you may never find that real self inside. This is what the path is about, is to kind of uncover, like peeling back the layers of an onion, one layer at a time. Actually, don't do an onion, because the onion is so terrible for the eyes. Just do something that is less bad for the eyes, like a cabbage, yeah? One leaf at a time, peeling it back, yeah? Or the classic in the suit as it's a banana tree, which you peel back one leaf at a time and at the core, what do you find at the core? Nothing. Empty. The jewel in the heart of the lotus, as Ajahn Brahm likes to call it. Peeling back more again and again and again. The jewel at the heart of the lotus is emptiness. So if that's what you mean by seeing yourself, that is what you ultimately where you come to by practicing the non-self perception yeah using your meditation etc to uh, to practice that uh, and then one day you kind of see that insight the thing the buddha was always pointing at uh, and the very counterintuitive result is that seeing that there's nothing there is the highest bliss you can possibly have uh, isn't that weird uh, it sounds so strange, right? But this is what the Buddha says, and you need some confidence and faith uh, to actually move towards that, because it sounds so incredibly counterintuitive. Uh, and that is why the vast majority of the world's faith, they have a sense of self, yeah, a soul, a God, an eternal consciousness, whatever it is. They have something there which you can aim for, which you can find at the root of all of this. Uh, then comes the Buddha along and says, no, it isn't really like that. You have to go beyond that. Because that thing too, that, etern- that consciousness which seems eternal, that too will let you down eventually. You have to go beyond even that. That's what the Buddha says. That's why his teaching is so revolutionary. Why it goes so against the grain of the world. And why Buddhism is so different from other, almost any other teaching you find. I don't know what you, if you meant that, but anyway, that's my answer. So if you're not happy with my reply, yeah, I may have more compassion tomorrow. So try again tomorrow. We'll see what happens. Hi, Ajahn. Thanks for your teachings. The solitude for contemplation and being a recluse sounds inviting. While I feel like my attachments to other people will support this, how do you compassionately detach from others uh, that may have strong attachments, uh, particularly due to fears and lack of independent mindedness? Uh, or is it just my projecting my own attachment to them? Thank you. I don't know. I have no idea what you what is going on. Maybe you are projecting a little bit. Uh, um, but um, in the sense, uh, you know, it is it is not your. If other people are attached to you. Um, then they have some learning to do, yeah, and because eventually they will have to lose you. We all have to lose each other eventually. So even if you do kind of start that detachment process and they have to deal with it, then maybe it is good for them in a way, yeah. They're going to have to learn that eventually anyway, yeah. It is not necessarily bad. So uh, uh, sometimes we need to see the big picture. When I decided to become a Buddhist monk, my parents were not very pleased. Yeah, In fact, the exact opposite. We didn't bring you up to become a Buddhist monk. 
That's what I got. That's what I heard when I decided to become a Buddhist monk, and I thought tr- probably true. Yeah, it would have been very unusual to bring someone up to become a Buddhist monk. Yeah. Very unusual. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so uh, they were not happy at all. Sometimes I hear from people who grow up in a kind of Chinese culture that they can't let go of the children, but it's actually true pretty much everywhere. Yeah, this is kind of a universal thing. You don't want to let go. Okay, so my parents said like, they were gritting their teeth. Okay, if you have to go, yeah, well, you you have to go. Huh? But um, so this is always hard, yeah. But in the long run, it was the right thing to do. In the long run, my parents were very happy that I became a monk. Yeah, we actually had some meaningful conversations after a while. If you have a family where everyone does the same thing, everyone is pursuing material gain or doing the things. There's no one really there who has a deeper wisdom or understanding you can talk to in a deeper way. It's marvelous to have a monastic in the family. Yeah, someone who has a bit more insight, a different perspective on things. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. So uh, in the long run, it's always useful. Uh, so look at it in like that. Uh, yeah. And down the track, it is quite possible that this person they will thank you. Yeah, for doing the right thing, living in a good way. Yeah. And they will say, "Wow, if I had understood her, uh, I would have been so. I would have pushed you into the monastic life straight away. Yeah, I would have given you a brown robe. Here you are. Shave your head now. I will help you to shave your head. Yeah, that's that's the right way of thinking. Yeah. And then you are on the on the. So so sometimes we don't understand. We have to stand back, see the big picture of things, and then we can do the right thing. Yeah. So even if your parents are really dead against you ordaining, yeah, say to your parents, "I love you so much. I have to ordain." <laughs> yeah, that's a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah. And then they will scratch the head and they don't want to understand what you're talking about. But down the track, they will understand. Yeah. Dear Ajahn, <coughs> I keep having bad and evil thoughts. <laughs> uh, it happens throughout the day, not only during meditation. One side of me clearly knows that this is not right view but the other stronger side of me keeps allowing this to happen creating stories in my mind one after another how can i stop this it has been troubling me for many years what is your advice to deal with this so this sounds like some kind of habit yeah that you have kind of gotten into and you have this stories that you are creating that are negative so what you have to do is when the that story comes up you have to ask yourself what is going on where does it come from it comes from some kind of root perception somewhere some kind of perception that is going on i don't know what that is it could be many different things um Sometimes uh, these kind of thoughts come up if we try to suppress our mind too much. If you try to control your mind, uh, your mind will often react to that control uh, by giving you these thoughts that are very negative and unpleasant. Uh, yeah, I know people who they bow down to the Buddha and they have these really bad thoughts when they bow down to the Buddha. Why? Well, because they are almost like forcing themselves to bow down to the Buddha. And then the mind kind of rebels against that by kind of bringing up these negative thoughts. Yeah, As if you're trying to counteract the forcefulness of the bowing down. I'm sure that may happen to quite a few people. Yeah, Because when you come to the BSV, there's the group pressure. You have to bow down. Everyone else bows. Okay, I better bow too. Otherwise, I stand out. Please don't bow if you don't feel like it. You don't have to bow. Yeah, it's okay. Do whatever you can... <laughs> 
you can just walk out when everyone else is bowing and we're not going to bat an eyelid if you do that uh, we have no, nothing at all please don't feel any group pressure there isn't really any group pressure it is just a perception that each one of us creates in our own minds so sometimes that can be a problem yeah but um or it can simply be that you have some deep-seated negative things about something and you have to investigate what that is. And then those stories are based on those some basic underlying perceptions that are negative, often probably relating to people. Yeah, Who are the people in your life that you have problems with? Are there some family members perhaps? Maybe someone has treated you badly somewhere? Yeah, And then you have to try gently to change those perceptions uh, why am i having bad thoughts about these people yes they did bad things towards me but uh, it doesn't really help to have bad thoughts about them uh, they don't know what they're doing uh, they're just foolish in their own way uh, they are deluded uh, yeah creating more trouble for themselves than for anyone else uh, maybe i should have compassion for them uh, and this is possible to do, yeah. even for people who have treated you badly. At least you can do a little bit better than you have done before. Uh, gradually moving away from the grudge, uh, gradually moving away from that negative perception of the people uh, can be done. Uh. But I don't, it's hard for me to really know what is going on with so little information. You have to really try to investigate why those, where those thoughts are coming from. Uh. It's a good time to do that when you are in retreat. Uh, yeah, you're sitting in meditation. Suddenly the thought comes up. Stop yourself. Why did it just come up? Uh, what was the root there? Where did it begin? Yeah, and try to trace it back to the beginning to see where it is coming from. Uh, and uh, you should be able to uncover it eventually. And then you can change your perception. Uh, in the meantime, be kind to yourself. Uh, if you're hard on yourself when these things happen, if you try to force it out of your mind, uh, very likely it will come back with a vengeance. Uh, so just sit there and say, yeah, yeah, bad thoughts. Okay, just watch them. Yeah, da da da, bad thoughts. And then uh, <laughs> you just be stay with the bad thoughts, and eventually they wear themselves out because you know eventually they don't really. If you accept them, uh, they're not so interesting anymore, uh, and then they kind of fade away, uh, and then you're okay again. Uh. So a lot of the thing is often just to stay with them, be mindful. Okay, bad thoughts. Uh, where do they go? Uh? They don't, may not go anywhere at all. Uh. They may not have any, they, you just see where they head. And the more you have mindfulness and are aware of those thoughts, the less you are feeding them. And because you're not feeding them, eventually they will die out. This is really, this might be the best way for you to go about overcoming these things. Anyway, good luck. And if you wish to discuss it more, you are very welcome to do so at any time. Dear Arjan, thank you for your wonderful teachings. What is the difference between tanha and upadana? I am uh, in one stop, uh, one stop the mind at the point of tanha and not go to upadana. So should one stop the mind at the point of tanha and not go to upadana? Um, the difference is really upadana means to pick up, yeah, take up something. Upadana, grasp hold of something. Yeah. So tanha is the feeling that you want to grasp things. Uh, is the desire to take things. Ah, I need water. Yeah. So as soon as you need the water, the next thing you do is you grasp the cup, and then you drink. So they are like one step further down the track. Yeah, the craving and then the taking 
up of things as a result of that craving him. And that taking up can be very broad. Yeah, If you come here to the Buddhist society of Victoria, BSV, why do you come here? Well, you come here because of craving. Yeah? What are you craving for? You're craving for a better life. You're craving to improve yourself. You're craving for all of these kind of things. Everyone is craving for that. But do you choose to come to the BSV instead of getting blind drunk or something like that, which some people do? Yeah, so good on you for doing something wise with your suffering in life. That's marvelous already. So uh, everything we do, tanha, almost our whole life, is based on the grasping of a number of things. Being a Buddhist, owning a house, having a job, having an education, ownership of things, all of this is grasping ideas that we have, political ideas, who our friends and enemy are, enemies are. Almost everything in life is some kind of grasping based on some kind of craving somewhere. This is very, very broad. And our whole life then takes a shape takes a certain direction based on all that upadana and craving here. So don't worry so much about it because it cannot be changed. You have to crave and you have to have upadana. Yeah? You have to crave, desire, and then you have to take things up. There's no choice in the matter. Here. So what we have to do is to try to uh, change the quality of the craving, change the quality of the upadana, take up new things. Yeah? When someone realizes that getting drunk is not the way out of problems and they come to meditate instead, that means they're taking one step in the right direction. When you realize that getting angry is not the right way, having compassion is much better. You're moving a step in the right direction. Yeah, You're using that craving to overcome the problems in a positive way and then taking up new things that lead you up the ladder of attachment. You always have to hold on to the rungs, uh, but you let go of the lower rungs, the more base rungs, the dirty rungs, and you grasp the brighter rungs higher up uh, that lead to more happiness. Uh, and then you climb up that ladder, uh, and eventually, when you climb that ladder high enough, uh, then eventually you can overcome the upadana, the attachment altogether. Uh, but in the meantime, it is as a matter, it's a series of attachment uh, that you ascend uh, as you move towards. Uh, uh, the highest kind of insights uh, in this world. And so it's don't worry too much about whether you are attaching, whether you have tanha, worry about whether you are making the most of those things. Uh, you have the right kind of upadana. Yeah? That is what matters. Uh, have upadana to being kind. Yeah? Attach to being kind a little bit. Crave to be kind. Yes, today I must be kind. How can I ensure that today I am really nice and gentle to people around me. Okay, I meditate for 10 minutes, I do a bit of loving-kindness meditation, I keep this at the right view, at the back of my mind at all times, so that I always try to be aware of what I say and how I act. You take this very, very seriously. Yeah, That is the right kind of upadana. You attach to the Buddhist path in a certain way. Then you're heading in the right direction. Too often we... um, Kind of, we are concerned about upadana itself, but that is something that can only be given up uh, down the track. Yeah. Okay. Oui. Okay, it's a long one. It's a small essay, but not too long, fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Dear Ajahn Brahmali, many thanks for your inspiring teachings and the suttas and your generous sharing with us, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. 
I have heard it said that if you understand one of the three characteristics, you understand them all. Is this so? Um, yes, this is partly partly so. Uh, uh, the depth, of course, may vary a little bit. It depends a little bit on what you focus on. But certainly when you eventually see them fully, then they all come together as one. Yeah. But um, so you can imagine, yeah, when you look at the impermanence of things, the unreliability of the world, then you will, if you think about that unreliability in the right way, you will also understand suffering, yeah? If you cannot hold on to the things in your life, you will have some idea that suffering is going to happen as a consequence. Dying, why is dying suffering? Because dying is one of the greatest moments of impermanence in our lives. You can't hold on to anything. You really have to let go. So dying can be very difficult for people, yeah? Because you, ha you have no choice but to let go. Other people die, we die, whatever it is. They are very difficult moments. It's good to be prepared for those. And um, when you see that things are out of control, yeah, they are impermanent, they are suffering, they are out of control, you realize also in a certain way that they are non-self, yeah? Because you cannot control them. Uh, having a sense of self is precisely the ability to control things. Uh, so they do come together, but it depends. Sometimes it's easy to focus on one. Uh, you may not really understand the others, uh, but they cannot tend to come in the slipstream of the one that you focus on. Uh, impermanence is probably one of the easiest one to focus on. Uh, yeah, when the Buddha summarizes his teachings at the, at, when he's just about to pass away, what does he say? He says, Vayadhamma Sankara. Appamadena Sampadeta, Vaya Dhamma Sankara. Uh, sankaras, condition, all phenomena have the nature of ending. Yeah? Vaya Dhamma, the, the nature of ending. Everything comes to an end. Everything ceases. Appamadena Sampadeta. Practice with heedfulness. Practice with diligence. Yeah? Carry on with diligence. That's the summary of his entire teachings. Yeah? The very last thing he says before he passes away. Yeah? So the idea of impermanence is like the root thing, everything must cease, yeah? The root understanding of Buddhist reality. Based on that root understanding of reality, you then practice, yeah? That's the Noble Eightfold, noble eightfold Path. Uh. The right view comes first, everything is impermanent. Based on that right view, you know there's no choice but to practice. Uh. So if you just remember that much, Vaya Dhamma Sankara, yeah? All phenomena are impermanent. All phenomena are unreliable. Yeah, if you can just remember that one thing and then remember kindness. Kindness is the path. Everything is impermanent. I better be kind. And then you have to make the connection between those two, which is quite obvious hopefully by now. Yeah, kindness is a spiritual aspect and you have to live the spiritual aspect because the world is utterly unreliable. So this, this is how so, so sometimes it's enough to focus on that impermanence, yeah? So, uh, and then the other things that just happen in the slipstream. So you have to figure out for yourself what is uh, best to focus on for you. And then as you do that, they, as you say, they tend to come together. Yeah? Having had much experience of suffering, yeah, I, get, I get that. Uh, and probably anicca. Uh, but uh, through... Though intellectually I understand non-self, I don't think I do so at an experiential level. That's okay, yeah? It's, it's much more difficult to understand at an experiential level. Out of compassion, can you please help? Many thanks again. 
So, okay, let me give you an idea how to ex- understand non-self experientially, yeah? And uh, the, one of the best ways of doing that is to do it in meditation practice. Uh, because uh, one of the things that happens in meditation, if you do it well, is that things start to fade away here, yeah? And uh, when you go deep enough in meditation, things fade away so completely here uh, that they actually cease. Even if things fade away temporarily, yeah, you may not have direct access to them. But when they really cease, yeah, the body is gone, for example, all you are in your mind. Uh, the more deep, the deeper your meditation is, that is your chance to understand these things experientially. Because when you are so deep, you don't have access to something, you can't even go there if you want to, you know it cannot be you. Yeah, It is outside of your reach. Maybe it is some kind of appendage or something, but it's not the real you. Because otherwise you would be able to control it, you would be able to access it. So look at it there. That is where you can actually see these things. That is where you need to investigate. Yeah, But you can do that also in a more superficial fashion in your life. Yeah, The idea that things in the world are out of your control. You try to control things. You try to experience the things that you want in this world. But you can't. And that should give you an idea that they are not you. Your feelings, yeah, you, you probably would like to be happy all the time. You would try, probably, as you said, you have experienced a lot of suffering in your life. Did you experience that suffering because you wanted to suffer? Probably not, yeah. You didn't have much choice, probably. It just comes in your life and you have no choice. Why is that? Because you can't control your feelings. If we could control our feelings, we'd be happy, blissed out, uh, you know, all the time, yeah, 24 7 bliss. Nobody can have 24-7 bliss, uh, except if you are maybe in uh, Sanya Vedaita Niroda, the cessation of perception and feeling. You can hang out there for seven days, but apart from that, uh, can't really do it. So uh, that shows you non-self, yeah? You're not in control of your life. And uh, this feeling that we have inside of us, that we are in control, uh, the feeling that we can do things uh, yeah, the way we want to do things, uh, that is an illusion. Uh, it is an illusion because the proof of the pudding is that we can't do, feel exactly what we want. Uh, this is a way of thinking about non-self. Uh, but ultimately, you have to experience it through deep, deep meditation. When things cease, uh, then you will see, wow, it's completely gone. I can't deal with it. I can't access it. It must be non-self. Uh, so, good luck. But, um, you know, it is often enough to focus on the simple things. Uh, yeah, Sometimes I... I feel a bit. I'm, sometimes I'm not sure whether I should. How many of these profound suttas I should teach? Because sometimes I know that uh, some people, especially if you are a beginner on this path, it probably baffles you. Some of these suttas, you think, "What on earth is this? Uh, did I have I come to the right place? Uh, I must have made a mistake. I come did the wrong turn or something." You know, because uh, it is quite baffling if you're new to this. Uh, and in a group like this, there are all kinds of people. Some of you are really super experienced. You've been around for decades. Uh, and some of you have just recently come to these teachings, uh, and then you have to try to find that balance. Uh, and uh, I hope that the idea is for everyone to get something out of this. That's why I try to bring in new suttas every time, to expand the horizon a little bit, to see things in a new way. Uh, and for those of you who are more new, I hope you just uh, hang in there for a while. Yeah, uh, hear, hear this out, uh, see that there is something right going on, uh, and then be open-minded about the things that you can't verify straight away. Uh. Anyway, 
So, uh, question number two. Question number two? Okay, what, what happened to question number one? Anyway, <laughs> well, <laughs> must be maybe the other one. So, dear Bante, once more out of compassion, can you please comment uh, as is it the Kandas driving home tonight? <laughs> i.e. form, will, eye consciousness, etc. Many thanks. Is it the Kandas driving home tonight? Um, yes, in a way it is. Yeah, But in a way, even the car is kind of part of the five Kandas. Yeah, because what is the car? The car is just something in your mind, something that you experience. The car is not outside of your experience. It's kind of part of that experience. So in a more kind of complete fashion, you could say the car too is part of the khandas, the driving itself, the whole world is in a sense part of the five khandas insofar as it is your experience, yeah? Because what is your experience? Well, the five khandas include perception, and perception is everything that we experience. What is the world beyond our perception? We don't really know, it is our perception that matters. So in one way you could say the khandas drive home, in one, another way everything is just the khandas, yeah? including the trip itself. <laughs> so think about that, but don't dream about it. Otherwise, you might have a night. No, you won't have a nightmare. You will probably have. maybe we will enjoy that dream, and you come out. Maybe you come out enlightened at the other end if you dream like that. <laughs> anyway, that is it for tonight. So uh, have a good night's rest, and we'll see you again tomorrow morning as usual. Let's pay respect to Buddha Dhamma Sangha. If you don't want to pay respect to Buddha Dhamma, please don't do so. <laughs>